Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Anyway, hey, we're starting a new book in the 8.30 service. How we do this, um, we've got one U there. Um, we... How we do this in the 8.30 service, if you're visiting here today or you're new, is that we do we go through a book of the Bible at a pace that we designate. So I'm going to throw something up on the screen now to give you a clue as to what we are going to go through. Which book of the Bible do you think? Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles. No, there's only eight there. All right. Daniel, we're going through the book of Daniel. Now we're going to do this for a few weeks and then we get into our spiritual growth campaign through March and then we're going to go back into the book of Daniel. So we're going to pause it for a few weeks. Here's a few fast facts for you. The date that it's set and it's written, book of Daniel. So Daniel 1, verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim of Judah... This was 605 BC, and it was the first year of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And that's backed up in Jeremiah 25.1. So the book of Daniel covers about 68 years. 68 years, sometimes scholars think 70 years, um, because it fits in neatly with other um, prophecies that we'll get to in a moment. So the book is historically accurate. So it's looking at royal records, it's looking at historical data, and Daniel intentionally talks about the third year, the fourth year of reigns and whatnot, so that it is backed up. He is a government employee. He needs to make sure that his record keeping is squeaky clean. And the author is, in fact, Daniel. If you read about, uh, if you read some commentaries about Daniel, you'll find that some people throw some conjecture in there because they're confused about the prophecies and who wrote them. And we won't go into that today. We'll go into that in a couple of weeks from now. But overall, the overwhelming evidence points to Daniel being the writer of that. And so the structure is kind of neat in terms of the way the book of Daniel is set up. Um, chapters 1 to 6 are a historical uh, account of the exile of, the God's, of God's people in Babylon. And then chapters 7 to 12 are about the visions that Daniel gets as a visionary and a prophet. So it, as, a genre, as, as it sits in terms of genres of books... It is an historical account of um, apocalypse, but also um, a prophetic book as well. And so in the canon of scripture, it sits um, in a a funny way. But it's a simple book, yeah? The the book of Daniel is a Sunday school staple. It's a simple book that if you've been in Sunday school, kids' church as we call it, it is a very simple book. Daniel in the lion's den, full of faith, God will provide. But there's also these visions that scholars just can't settle on that we can't really define. Now, there's some historical events that point to them, to those visions coming to pass and the, and the prophetic of those visions um, being attained. But as my Bible college lecture said when I was doing Daniel, we're not going to examine on this because it's far too hard for scholars to agree. So anyway, in the chapel, in a few weeks' time, we're going to go through the visions anyway. We're going to have a real good crack. <laughs> so... Um, its role in eschatology, so the story of the Bible uh, as it goes through time. 
In the Christian Bible, it's placed amongst the prophets. Um, But in the Jewish scriptures, it's placed within the wisdom writings. So Psalm, uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, they're the wisdom writings. So the order is uh, is flip-flopped around. Interestingly, in the Christian Bible, or the Bible, don't need to preface it with Christian, the Bible, um, Ezra and Nehemiah talk about the historical end of the, the time in Babylon, but they happen before they fall before Daniel in the order of the Bible. So history is flipped around in terms of the order of the books of the Bible, um, but it doesn't negate what Daniel says in his book. Anyway, the overall message. If you're trying to remember, if you've read Daniel, or you're trying to work out what Daniel is about right now, if you've never read it, the overall message, in my opinion, in my summary, is this. That God is sovereign, that God has control over everything. And even though bad things happen, like God's people being taken from Jerusalem, being taken out of their homeland and put into exile in Babylon, God still had overruling power and eventually dealt with human evil. And he was in such control, such obvious control. Um, before and after that when we take a helicopter view of our circumstances, we can see that God is in control, even if our prayers aren't being answered right now and even if it looks like things aren't happening. Anyway, let's go through some biblical links. There's quite a few inroads in the Bible that lead to the book of Daniel and we're going to race through those this morning. So Isaiah 39, 1-7. So the context here is that King Hezekiah of Judah... Um, It was a wealthy and godly ruler, but he makes this mistake. And you can read about that in 2 Chronicles um, 29 to 32. So there's another book of the Bible. We've gone three books already. So Isaiah was the prophet at the time. Isaiah was the prophet to King Hezekiah. And so you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 32, 20. So what happens is um, the Assyrians invade Jerusalem, King Hezekiah's patch. And he makes a deal with them. He gives tons of silver and gold to the Assyrians so that the Assyrians move out. And what he has to do is he has to strip the temple of God of the silver and the gold. So he gives that to the Assyrians. Big no-no, all right? He's violated Torah law as a Jew. And so this is what happens when he, he shows up uh, in Isaiah 39, 1-7. It says, At the time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly, so Babylonians coming to have a look around the kingdom. And he showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armoury and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, hey, what did those men say and where did they come from? And King Hezekiah said, they're from a distant land, they're from Babylon. And the prophet Isaiah said, uh, asked, Why did, what did they see in your palace? And Hezekiah says, they saw everything in my palace. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. And then Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when 
everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, even your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Not a prophecy that you want to hear. No, it's heavy stuff. And so Jeremiah, so we're into the fourth book now that's backing this stuff up. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 25, 8, 11. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sounds of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And so I'm just going to dip my toe in Daniel 1 right now before going into other books. So Daniel 1. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So it happens. And that's how Daniel starts his writing. It happens. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Wool. Prophecies coming true, ones that you were hoping the prophet got wrong, but they're right. 2 Chronicles 36, the whole chapter of 36 details what happened on those fateful days where Babylonians came in um, over Jerusalem. And so it details the invasions and there were brutal killings, mostly of young men, but they didn't spare women and children either. Horrific killings. They just wiped the whole place clean. And later in that chapter, it talks about the decree of King Cyrus of Persia. So King Cyrus overcame the Babylonians decades later and neatly, 70 years after God's people were exiled, um, he decrees that the Israelites can go back. To Jerusalem. So Ezekiel 12, so this is that fifth book now, I think we're up to. Ezekiel 12 prophesies about the Babylonian exile. And then if you read Ezra 1 and Nehemiah 1 and 2, it talks about the times where God's people come back to Jerusalem and start building the temple. So there's this 70 year cycle, this story, plus when prophecies happened from multiple different people who heard the God, God in multiple different ways. They were in multiple locations, but they all got the same thing. They all got the same prophecies leading into the book of Daniel. And so that is the God that we serve. The God that allows all these bad things to happen has these little inroads where his thumbprints on them is saying, I'm working. It's going to be bad, but I'm absolutely working and I'm going to work all things for my purpose. Yeah? Anyway, let's get into chapter one. Daniel's an intern for the king amongst a lot of other people. And so from, from verse four, it says that all these interns were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Wouldn't that be great to be able to write on your LinkedIn profile? That'd be awesome. Anyway, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Good remuneration there. And they were to be trained for three years and 
after that, they were to enter the king's service. And so his mates were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then they go through some testing. They really want to make sure that their training um, is useful. And so picking up in verse 15 of Daniel 1, um, sorry, they, they forego the royal diet. So they, they push away uh, the alcohol and all the fine foods. And so they do that for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it says in verse 15, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds just because of doing a fast for 10 days. That's pretty cool. You guys have done 21 days of fasting. Anyone get any dreams and visions? Love to hear about it afterwards. Yeah? Okay, verse 18. At the end of that time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. The king talked to them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and that's their Jewish names. Um, So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. A lovely little cliffhanger to come about the exile ending after the 70 years. So why is Daniel relevant to us? Why why is a historical book written about a time 2,600 years ago in a place that is so far from Tamworth. Why is that relevant to us? Let me give you a couple of points right now. These guys served God, even though they were in some of the most horrific circumstances that ever happened to their people. And the Jews have had a hard run, yeah? So this is is one of the hardest, maybe one of the biggest things that uh, they've ever had to deal with. But they remained faithful to their God, even though everything was stripped away from them. And so we love to say this phrase in, in Christian language, be in the world but not of the world. And so they were being trained as Babylonians but they still held firm in their faith, which is so incredible. With God, you can be as useful as a human can be. If they're 10 times better than everyone else that went through the same training, how do you explain that? How do you explain that someone is so useful even though they've been put through this regime uh, amongst their peers, but then they're elevated? It can only be the touch of God on someone's life. The other thing is, even when bad things happen, God can still use you. So these guys were given privilege in amongst the bad stuff, but God lifted them up so that they could serve him. And we'll get into that in, uh, in chapters and weeks to come. And Here's here's one thing that's going to speak to us Aussies. They didn't agree with their leader, but they honoured them anyway. Oh, I'll let that marinate. Okay, you may not have voted in your politicians, but I hope that you honour them. Yeah, we need to honour our leaders and our politicians. And the last one that I want to put in there, and we're going to learn more about Daniel in the weeks to come. God is in control no matter what's going on in the world. When the carpet's ripped out from underneath us, God is still in control. He sees it beforehand. He has a plan afterwards. He wants you to work through that. And so what we do now in the 8.30 service is we have a bit of a break. We have a bit of a chat amongst the people around our tables. And I'd like you to talk about this. When has your world crumbled, but you knew God was in control? Does anyone have a testimony of that? I would love to hear some testimonies of when your world seems like it's all fallen down, God is in control. So have a, have a chat about that for a few minutes and then we're going to hear from Pastor Brom.
I don't know if you celebrate Valentine's Day, but I remember as a 19-year-old, uh, Daz and I had started dating, and it was my first Valentine's Day. Now, Daz was my first boyfriend, apart from Charlie Brown in year six, and a litany of suitors in preschool. But um, Daz, so I'm like looking forward to my first Valentine's Day. I'm like, wow, I finally get to participate in this thing that I've seen in movies and on the TV and everything. I cannot wait. And uh, so I don't, I don't know what I was expecting, but you know, I'd seen movies with flowers and chocolates and all the rest of it. Um, but there's this really cool thing called a grandfather clock and, um, and they're massive and they're usually antique and you just find them in the most amazing of places like antique stores and they're usually family heirlooms. Huge. They're the ones that chime and have the big pendulum. Well, there's another version called a grandmother clock and it's also amazing and beautiful and chimes and usually sits on a mantle, antique wood kind of deal. But what people don't realise that if you get into town late and you've forgotten about Valentine's Day and the only thing left open is a chemist, then they've also got like gold-coloured metal grandmother clocks that are this big. They're pretty amazing. And so as a 19-year-old, when I met Daz at the lookout because he'd just come into town um, and, you know, we were just there to chat and things. That's what you go to the lookout for. Um, And Daz, as my first Valentine's Day, hands me this amazing little grandmother clock. (laughs) It was incredible. I don't know where it is now. (laughs) It got lost somewhere in the move. It's just devastating. (laughs) But I want to talk to you today about ripping up the list. Rip up the list. And we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, This is the going forward section of our chapel service where we take something home to apply. Andrew, that was phenomenal, that um, talk about Daniel. You could be a Bible college lecturer. That was amazing. 66 different books, 40 different authors, all coming together to tell the story of a God who is sovereign and interacts with his people and how he does that is amazing. And so um, I'm, I can't wait to go through Daniel. But we're just going to get really practical here this morning. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So... Above all, what's Peter talked about so far? He's talked about the need to pray, to rejoice, to exhibit self-control, to be holy, to put away deceit, hypocrisy and jealousy and unkind speech. He's talked about showing God's goodness, respecting those in authority, loving the family of believers. Um, If you're a slave, be a good one. If you're a wife, be respectful. Uh, If you're, and and not um, annoying. Uh, If you're a husband, treat your wife as equal to yourself, countercultural then. Um, And all of you have be prepared to give a gentle and respectful explanation of the hope that you have and then he says above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins so this is not if you can just get one thing right get love right this is love is the life force be, be that empowers everything else that you're going to do. Every instruction that I will give, love is the impetus. It is the energy that will allow those things to happen. As Paul writes, without love, all those things that you could do are just noise. And so love each other deeply, it says. This is the word agape. Uh, It's a divine love. Um, if If it's used plurally, it's love feasts which is where they came together and the wealthy provided for the poor and people who would never usually associate with each other sat around tables and ate together and feasted together. It's that kind of love. It's a love that maybe, you know, we can't get our heads around. Um, It's a love that 
that you might consider un-Australian. It's the love that he talks about in 1 Peter 1.22. He says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. I don't know how you feel about that, how confident and competent you feel in being able to do that. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, the, the, Paul, uh, Peter, rather, as a Jewish young man, um, would have learnt scripture that Andrew talked about. And Andrew said that in Jewish scripture, Daniel was one of the wisdom writings, but also so was Proverbs. And this concept is over again and again in Proverbs. And actually, Peter would have been quoting, and to a Jewish audience, they all would have understood a proverb he was quoting, which says, Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all sins. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Love covers all sins. He, the writer of Proverbs expands this concept constantly. 15 verse 18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. 16, 27, a scoundrel plots evil. And on their lips, it is like a scorching fire. A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. 28, 25, the greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. 17, 9, whoever would foster love covers over an offence, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. So in all these Proverbs, we see that actually it's incumbent upon us to be those that cover offences. And we want to look at what this actually means. Now, not only did they have the wisdom writings that he was quoting from, but they had an analogy, a story from their history that displayed what this looked like. And this was where you might be familiar with the story of Noah and the ark and God kind of resets humanity. It says that every inclination of the human heart was wicked. So God resets humanity, resets creation um, through Noah and the ark. And when it gets to the end and it's just Noah and his family and two kinds of each animal restarting all things, Noah grows a vineyard and gets drunk. He's been through a lot, but we don't make excuses for that kind of behaviour because the New Testament says that those who get drunk get up to stupidity. And so don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. That's just word for anyone who's still engaging in stupidity. Now, Noah's particular brand of stupidity was that he got naked. And we might go, oh, I know people that get drunk and get naked. That, I know that brand of stupidity. But Noah is, it's more than just a bit of a, you know, skinny dip or whatever. This is a deep shame in their culture. And what happens is he's passed out naked and his son Ham walks in and sees him and goes out and tells his brothers. Now, um, you know, we might go, I'm just, well, I don't want to give any family examples. Okay, <laughs> move forward, move through. Um, I'm sure that we would just consider that a bit of a, that's the funny thing to do. Ah, dad's naked, go tell your brothers. But in fact, in this culture, it was a deep shame what had happened with Noah. And we're not given the details, by the way. Many scholars suggest that there was a lot more going on there. But we're not given all the details, but we just know it was a shameful thing. And so Noah's son, Ham, may be triggered um, by the trauma of being called Ham. Like, that was cruel. Um, but Ham goes out and he goes to his brothers. And what they do... They grab a blanket between them and they walk into the room backward so as not to see and the, the cover is going over their father as they walk in. They chose to cover their father's error. 
Ham chose to expose his father's error. Now we live in a culture and a day and age that we expose our parents' errors. We talk about what they did to us so that we can um, explain the way that we are. And there's a a time and a place for that. But this verse and, and what the Bible would say is that we're better to go on a treasure hunt to find out the good things about those that have gone before us, about those that are around us. If we're offended, if we get hurt, that we're actually on a treasure hunt to find out good things about them rather than amplifying the hurt. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, this concept of covering over has really negative connotations in our society, right? Cover up, covering, it feels like it's either dishonest or it's, um, you know, some kind of bullying or intimidation that we're covering that kind of thing up. And Daz and I always want to make clear that we're never for people staying in unsafe situations or where your family is unsafe. Um, So much so that we're out to dinner recently and someone was treating their date badly and it got to the place where... I, I went out and said, well, come on, son. <laughs> Daz was like, Broman, you're an idiot. Go away and I'll calm this whole situation down. So praise the Lord for Darren is all we've got to say there. Um, okay, so I don't know if that's not in the notes. Um, <laughs> love covers over a multitude of sins. We don't want to cover over bullying or intimidating behaviour that we stand up for bullying and intimidating behaviour. And where there's dishonesty, we bring truth to that situation. But we cover over sins that um, are able to be done away with. Let me explain what I mean by that. By going to, uh, oh, yep, sorry, Marie. By ripping up the list, firstly, of expectations. This is kind of the level where we want to land this at. Ripping up our list of expectations. I want you to consider for a moment who Andrew was talking about. The Israelites who are in exile. How would they have felt towards when they've heard the expectation of a God who will provide for them, of a God who will look after them, of a God who will provide their every need and be in a covenant relationship with them. Now, regardless of the fact that they have totally turned away from Him, that they have no right to um, claim that covenant relationship with Him, they have no, no, regardless, they've been taken out of their homeland and put somewhere completely different. Many of them made eunuchs, many of them completely disappointed with what God has done. And their expectations of who God would be for them would have been decimated. Now, Zephaniah, another book that talks about these same events, says in chapter 2, verse 3, and it's not on the screen, he says, Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow His commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. This is after he said, there's going to be an exile. You're going to be defeated. You're going to be carried away. Judgment on your sins is coming. He says, Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you from that day. Perhaps even yet. I don't know about you, but that's not kind of the language of claiming it and faith. And, but he, he's saying, look, regardless of what your expectation is here, your behaviour is what's important. It's about you and how you're going to respond to this. And perhaps even yet God will do something, but even if He doesn't, what are you going to do? Are you going to live humbly? Are you going to be the person that um, decides that it's incumbent upon you to do the right thing? Rip up the list of expectations on God, on others and on yourself. John Bevere says uh, in his 1994 book, The Bait of Satan, Keeping Yourself from the Trap of Offence, he makes the, the whole book's predicated on the concept that um, there are expectations and then there's reality. We have expectations of people and then we have reality. And the gap between those two is where the trap of offence lies. 
So because you're my family, I have greater expectations of your loyalty towards me. And so that's a bigger gap between the reality and the expectation. So the the risk of offence is so much greater. Let me tell you that in the church, because we're Christians, we have greater expectations on each other. We look in our workplace and we expect people to do what they're doing because they don't even claim to love Jesus. So when someone does something to us in here that hurts our feelings, the gap between expectation and reality is so much greater. And I want to say to you, rip up the list of expectations and just concentrate on what you're doing. Just be humble and concentrate on what you're doing like Zephaniah said. Keep some things on your list. Don't rip up the list altogether, like tear bits off. Um, When I wanted to marry Daz, um, or a husband, from the age of 14, I started praying through a list. I wanted to marry a tradie, someone who was tall, dark, Um, who also um, was a musician and a singer, hilariously funny. And uh, and I got one thing that was on my list. Now, Daz is actually super funny now, but at the time, he was just massively intense. Weren't you, Daz? (laughs) Like, he was known as the intense guy in our youth group. Um, and But the one thing on my list was that someone who loved Jesus more than I did. And that was 100% who Daz was. So keep some things on your list. But don't let the things on your list be the Mother's Day that you saw on Instagram or the kid's birthday cake that you saw on Pinterest or the business that you saw some guy on YouTube build. Like rip up all those lists of expectations. Hope for things, sure. Be excited about things, sure. But don't provide for yourself an offensive trap that is unnecessary. Don't get your list from the movies or from Instagram or from social media, but get them from the Word of God because that is a sure foundation for a hope that um, is worth living for. Uh, Okay. Rip up the list of expectations. You know, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Have you noticed that some people just seem to behold a lot more beauty than others? I think that it's possibly because they've exchanged their expectations for wonder. They're not wandering around with a list of expectations. They're wandering around looking for wonder. They're they're like, oh, what what might I see today? It's not a a pre-prepared list of expectations. Okay, second list is rip up the list of the record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 to 7, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It, is not, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. This removes from us the ability to say to someone, you always, when we're in a discussion with them, you always, you can't say that if you're not keeping a record of wrongs. This removes from us the ability to say, you never, because if we're not keeping a record of wrongs, we can't say that. The, the, uh, the way that we, you know, sometimes I, I want to build a case and sometimes I, I want to establish a pattern of behaviour and it really annoys me when I can't remember the bad things that people have done in the past. And then I'm reminded that that is actually the point. We're not supposed to be remembering the things that they've done in the past. Rip up the list of record of wrongs. Jay Vaughan says, do not tell it unless the necessity be urgent. So that would be if someone is in an unsafe situation, that would be if someone's being dishonest. We don't tell it. Or the utility, great, if it's really important. Never tell of a man what you have not first told to the man. Never think you can make yourself great by making another less. 
Tear up the record of wrongs. And the last one to to rip up, rip up the list, rip up the charge sheet. A charge sheet is something that's given while waiting for the judgment from a magistrate. That's what a charge sheet is. It says, I've gathered enough evidence that I think that you might be guilty. And so I've put that together. And now I'm going to treat you as guilty until that judgment comes. And many of us would say, well, I'm not God. I'm not God. I won't, I can't judge. But I've got a charge sheet, so I'll treat you as guilty until the judge makes his judgment. We, we sometimes do that. And sometimes our forgiveness is conditional on God giving his judgment. Sometimes we're okay with forgiving as long as God's going to give judgment. And please, God, you better not give mercy. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you in this. But the aim in ripping up our charge sheet and walking out of that courtroom, the aim there is that we might be like Jesus. That's always our aim. And Jesus hung on a cross and looked at his executioners, looked at the ones who had slandered his name and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, if I were there at the foot of the cross, so Jesus, if you could just hang on for a moment, please. Just take a beat. Uh, just take another breath and answer this question because I'm looking around and they all know exactly what they've done. They were plotting your death from the moment that you came to notoriety. Uh, those Roman soldiers, they 100% know what they've done right now. They know not what they do, Jesus, please. Like, really? And Jesus would be like, well, I was just about to declare the finished work of the cross and how complete it is. And But sure, Brian, I'll take a beat and answer your question. Um, hey, you don't actually know that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this age. And when I'm dying on this cross and when I'm asking God to forgive them for they don't know what they do, they have no idea of the bigger picture and the offence that's trying to be created here. And if I take offence right now, I cease being the spotless lamb that can pay for the sins of the world. I give no room for the enemy whatsoever when I pray, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I'm able to forgive them in this moment and, and remain the spotless lamb and the work is finished. And you might say, well, okay, Bron." That's the Son of God. Of course He could do that. But I want to remind you of our book of Acts when we studied just a few weeks ago when Stephen is being killed and he says, Lord, do not lay their charge against them. And you might say, okay, well, he was like one of the super greats of the early New Testament church. Let's go back to a guy who did not have the Holy Spirit, who had been treated horrifically in the Old Testament, a man called Joseph. And he's there and his brothers have sold him into slavery. Has that happened to anyone recently? Your brothers sold you into slavery. Okay, so let's put that as the bar of being treated badly for humanity in our scenario. And he's there and he comes eventually, encounters his brothers again because it hasn't stopped there. And if I'm Joseph, every bad thing that happens to me from that point I'm laying it at my brother's feet again. When I get into Potiphar's house and, and, and I get falsely accused and now I'm sitting in prison, this wouldn't have happened if it weren't for my brothers. I'd still be with my father right now. When the people forget me, when they say that they're going to mention me to the king, but I'm still in prison, this would never have happened if my brothers had never have done that because I'm keeping this record of wrongs and I've got this charge sheet against my brothers. 
But when Joseph sees them, he is able to say, you meant it for my evil, but God worked it all together for good. And that's our goal, that we could be treated as badly as bad might be, but God's gonna work it all together for good. So we don't hold it against anybody because it's not even them. There is an enemy, but he's not in this room. We might be treated badly, but we can um, know that there's something much greater at work. And if we forgive, we dismantle the power of the enemy and his ability to find offence in us. Sometimes Daz and I'll get upset or one of us will get upset with a person and, and the other one will go, oh yeah, but what about this? Oh, and what about this? And depending on what mood the person's in, we'll go, oh, you always stick up for them or you're not listening to my needs or whatever it is. Does That's not usually does, by the way. Um, <laughs> sometimes, yeah, you never listen to me, Bron. No, not does. Um, and, and we'll talk to each other and, and we'll talk each other round out of that situation. But what I would love is if it didn't even make it to does, if I didn't need that, if I was able to talk myself around ahead of time, if I was able to go to God and let him talk me around, let him remind me of all the good things and the ways that that's not actually the case. You see, with this, We get to hide people's sins from man. Repentance is what hides it from God. And so we leave that to God and we leave that to them. If Sarah Alvarez upsets me this week, then then she and and, and she is actually does something really wrong, then that's between her and God. But I can hide it from men. My love for her can cover her sin before men. I get the privilege of being able to do that. And so finally, just two scriptures to finish, two Psalms. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's you and I. We are blessed because of this. Um, Psalm 85 verse two, you forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. That's you and that's me. If we trust in Jesus, He covers all our sins. And He asks us to participate with Him in the privilege of being able to act as He has towards each other. So brothers and sisters, I hope that this week you might be able to let go of some things, that you might be able to rip up some lists. Maybe you've got a record of wrongs that you're holding and today might be the day that you can rip that up. So let's just be our heads and close our eyes before Luke comes back. Lord, right now we just want to release expectations to you. Lord, unrealistic expectations, realistic expectations. Lord, we acknowledge that we are a frail and flawed humanity and the one that really can hold our expectations and carry them is You. So Lord, we increase our hope in You. We lift up our hope in You. We acknowledge that You are gonna come through on our behalf, Lord. And Lord, uh, we just ask that You'd help us to rip up our expectations on each other. Mighty God, I pray that we'd rip up the list of the record of wrongs things that we're building the case, things that we're holding against people. Lord, I pray that we just have a fresh start right now. And Lord, I pray that also we'd rip up the charge sheet. Lord, where we've deemed that someone is guilty, but we're waiting for you to be the judge. Lord, I pray that we would rip that up. We'd stop treating them as though they're guilty. And we'd just know that you're gonna deal with all things one day and trust you with that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.